You're listening to The Driven, the podcast that gives you the news and the views, the ins and the outs on electric vehicles. The Driven is presented by Giles Parkinson, the editor of Renew Economy and The Driven websites, and is brought to you by ZeroMo, a non-profit initiative helping transition to battery-powered lawn and gardening equipment and electric vehicles using 100% renewable energy. Hello and welcome to this latest episode of The Driven Podcast. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of The Driven website and also of Renew Economy. Well, we have just emerged from a very intense election campaign where one of the features was electric vehicles and the policies to encourage them. Labor, of course, came in with a 50% target for electric vehicles of new vehicle sales by 2030. The Greens wanted to go even further, 100% of new vehicle sales. And the coalition tried to shoot this down with all sorts of fear campaigns and fear stories about the end of the weekend and impossible to charge within a week and cost everyone an absolute bomb and you can't tow a caravan or a trailer. But I think we all know that this electric or this electric vehicle rev- revolution is coming. Just look at West Farmers. They've dumped coal and reinvested their money in a lithium battery minerals um, investment purely because they see the electric future coming. And BHP made the same point three days after the election. They are betting quite big on electric vehicles, mainly because they see the use of minerals that they like to mine, things like copper and nickel. Anyway, it's not just electric cars which are at the forefront of attention, it's also buses and garbage trucks. The first council in Victoria has just recently electrified its garbage truck fleet and, would you believe, planes. Now, there is a future, people say, of just imagine flying between regional centres in electric planes. And uh, one of the first people to actually do this himself and is a big proponent not just of electric vehicles and electric planes, is Simon Hackett. And Simon, I'd like to welcome you back to the Driven Podcast. Thanks for joining us again. It's a pleasure, Giles. It's always a pleasure. We've got you back on because uh, we did have you in one of our very first um, podcasts for the Driven, um, talking about electric vehicles, Mm. and um, that was really informative. Because there's still a lot of people, a lot of things that people don't understand about electric vehicles, and particularly with charging. And I guess we've seen some of that since the electric um, in the election campaign. But I really want to talk to you about electric planes, because you've actually got an electric plane, um, and it's one of only two in Australia. So tell us, what is it, and why have you got it? Right. Well, yeah, I've got one of the only two electric aircraft, fully electric aircraft that I'm aware of, at least in Australia. Um, And the one I've got, and indeed the other one, is actually made by a company in Europe, in Slovenia, it turns out, Slovenia or Italy, called Pipistrel. And Pipistrel have been making gliders and and small uh, small, um, powered aircraft for a long time. They're a very well-established manufacturer. They have a lot of green credentials in this regard. They've actually built various specialist electric um, aircraft for some competitions that happened a few years back. And the aircraft I've bought is an electric two-seat self-launching motor glider. It's called a Taurus Electro. And so it's a side-by-side two-seater with an electric motor, a 12 kilowatt hour lithium battery pack, um, and the motor is actually on the top of a stalk that comes out of the back of the aircraft with a propeller on it. So the motor is actually just a little, little little black object, looks like a wheel of cheese on top of the, <laughs> the, the top of the spine, that, this thing that comes out. And that's all there is. It's one of these amazing things. It's a 32 kilowatt 
electric motor. It's perfectly capable of launching this, this lovely motor glider up into the air and, and climbing as much as 8,000 feet into the air, which is about four times as much as you need for a decent launch for a glider. And then you shut the engine down. It's all very James Bond. The propeller disappears into the back of the aircraft along with the motor. Uh, and you go soaring in your glider. And if you need a bit more of a boost, you can, you can raise the thing while you're flying and give yourself a bit more of a boost to come home. So it's a, it's a pretty brilliant little bit of technology. Fantastic. So 12 kilowatt hours doesn't sound like very much. So you say it's good enough to launch you and to take up right. to that hike. And how much more can you do? Right. So it's very much intended as a self-launching motor glider. In other words, it's a, it's a glider. Your idea is to go up and go soaring on a nice day. Uh, and so this is a launch motor. Traditionally, these aircraft use a little petrol engine of some sort, a little, a little, um, two-stroke or four-stroke petrol engine to get you up. And the trouble with using petrol engines in that role, um, apart from the fact that they're, that they're noisy and noisy and nasty, uh, is that they're actually a bit of a maintenance pig. You know, you're running this engine in a way that the, the internal combustion engines hate, which is you start it up, you run it hard for five minutes, and you turn it, turn it off again. You know, it's exactly the way you kind of wreck petrol engines. So, so the maintenance pig aspect is what actually drove me to electric because an electric motor has got basically no maintenance and it plugs in with literally the same connector my Tesla uses, charge it up in the hangar um, and um, then unplug it and go out and go flying. So effectively, it's good for about four, you know, four 2,000 foot launches uh, and a boost if you want to get back. It's not intended to go huge distances. If you wanted to just go in a straight line with this, you'd get about 70 or 80 kilometers only, right? It's designed just as a launch vehicle. So, yes, Fantastic! Beautiful. Look, I um, we'll post some videos to go with this podcast um, that um, um, if we may that you've taken of the um, of the glider takeoff and sure. the glider and the glider landing. Um, I've got to say, there's a bit of a noise from that motor. I presume that's just the sound of the propellers going around very quickly. That's that's just the propeller, and this is one of the you know one, rather like electric cars, right? Where people erroneously think they're silent. Actually, at speed, they make about the same amount of sound as any other car because the majority of that sound's coming off the off the rubber of the rubber meeting the road. And yes, you're dead right. In this case, it's the propeller meeting the air. Um, just to just to mention that the other aircraft, the other electric aircraft that's flying, um, the first one, same company, Pipistrel, that aircraft is in Perth and it's actually flying as a as a as a training aircraft, a circuit training aircraft. What what students use to learn to fly. Um, it looks like a little ultralight, a little two-seat ultralight, and you go flying in that and run around the local airport, and that's got about an hour and a half of, of kind of circuit training time. Is that right? And do we know what the size of um, that battery is? Uh, no, I'd have to look it up. It's it's obviously sufficient, um, and the cool thing that one does in particular, that's designed to have lots of students doing circuit training, right? The way you learn to fly, the, the, the critical thing learning to fly is takeoff and landing. All the bits in the middle are pretty forgiving, right? It's the, it's when you're when you're talking to the ground that it matters. And the cool thing that other Pipistrel aircraft does, called an Alpha Electro, is that you have another set of batteries sitting in the hangar on charge while you're flying. And so you land the when you land the aircraft, you actually just pull the batteries and plug the next pair of batteries back in and go flying again. So you can actually charge a spare battery pack while there's a student out flying the thing, which is a pretty smart way mm. to work. For that particular application. So, when you're flying this um, this um, electrified glider in, in that takeoff mode and then sort of rising to eight thousand feet, mm -hmm. is there any change in experience for you as the pilot with an electric motor, battery powered electric motor, rather than the old um, um, petrol engine? Yeah, yeah. There's a couple of changes. I mean, like an electric car, it ain't smelly. That's kind of <laughs> nice. 
as you've noticed from the video, right? If you, and no, seriously, one of, one of the cool things you discover as an electric car owner, took a while to sink in for me, Giles, is that my garage doesn't smell like somebody smokes in there anymore. <laughs> Right, it's it you know it actually makes a difference. So the same thing here. It's it's while it, while there is some some propeller noise, it's much quieter than a conventional powered aircraft. Obviously, when the engine's off, it's silent. So the experience is just the same and just as beautiful with it off. The positive experience with it on is actually reliability. These petrol motors in these gliders are little things that get fanged really hard for short periods, as I said. And the, the thing you can get nervous about in a glider is whether you've got the capacity to give yourself a boost if you need to to get home, if the weather's not quite good enough. In this case, you know, if the vaults are there, the motor will start. There's no uncertainty about that. that and that's actually a big reassurance. It's a really nice situation. You know, you can rely on the thing because electric motors and batteries compared to internal combustion engines are really simple. Mm, mm. Now, we've heard talk about how um, some aircraft companies or passenger um, air passenger companies, um, I think, I don't know whether it's mm -hmm. Qantas, I mm -hmm. think there's probably um, a company in the US talking about electric and battery passenger planes. Now, this seems something of, um, right. this does seem right. so far away a couple of years ago, but I guess the solar impulse plane, that sort of, you know, very sort of prototype thing that did a, took about four or five or six months to get around the world with batteries and um, an extraordinary looking machine. Um, but the thinking has developed a long way since then. So how far do you think we're off from, from those sort of um, developments? Right, right. Right now we are seeing some companies, including some companies with, with operations in Australia, um, saying that they, they're building effectively small commuter aircraft. There's, a, there's, you know, there, there's the, the company that, that uh, you wrote about, um, Aviation, yes. that, uh, you know, that, that are aiming for a nine-seat aircraft capable of about a 1,000-kilometer flight. That's a really interesting role, that sort, of, that sort of connector role for relatively short distances with relatively small numbers of people. Um, but it's, you know, it's meaningful. It's meaningful in the sense that it starts something very, very nifty. I, I personally think it's, you know, it's going to be a hell of a, it's a bit of a stretch in my brain to imagine, say, an international flight purely on electricity. It's just an energy density thing. But for domestic flights, for connecting flights between, you know, local destinations, it seems like an area we can actually rationally look at for electric mm. aircraft. And that's a great idea. It's quieter. It's yeah. easier. Would they be... So it's it just... Yeah, yeah, would they be propeller airplanes or um, small jet airplanes? I'm just wondering if with the jet actually would um, make less noise or you still got the turbine sort of spinning in the in, in the middle of it. So there's obviously going to be some noise because when, when things turn with wind going through, um, not much you can do about it, I suppose. Well, actually, yeah, the, you're right. At the moment, like the, like the aircraft I've bought, it's just spinning a conventional propeller. There's actually a company in Perth. It's actually the one that owns the Pipistrel aircraft called Electro.Aero. And while they've got that Pipistrel aircraft, what they're actually working on is a very high efficiency electric turbine device. So, um, so basically, it's still got it's got blades, but it's built much more like a jet engine. So, a, a larger number of smaller blades inside a turbine housing, and that does produce a quieter result. It generates thrust rather than spinning, just the spinning propeller generating generating a push. So that is starting to happen. As well, that's fascinating. That's fascinating. And with electric plane, yes, it, it's it's, a, it, it's remarkable. Though I suppose there might be something quite gratifying about actually hearing some sort of engine noise when you're taking off in a plane, or or, or not. I suppose. <laughs> 
Well, they can be. They can be. I mean, it's funny. It's like the BMW i8, which actually has you know simulated nifty engine sounds actually coming out of the stereo because the actual internal combustion engine doesn't sound that way. <laughs> um, so, so people do that stuff. The the thing I'd say is that clearly electric aviation. Again, I don't I don't see it as something that's magically going to do international flights, but it is an example of a situation where if if somebody comes up with that magic bullet of a battery that's let's say ten times the current energy density. Right, and that's not an outrageous concept. We'll get there at this rate in two or three decades, just in kind of kind of incremental mm. improvement. But if one of those magic batteries turns up that's you know got ten times the energy density, so you can have you know a thousand kilowatt hours instead of a hundred in a car, that sort of engine, that sort of thing would be the density that would carry aircraft around. And the point of this is, you want to get the hang of building the aircraft now because shoving a better battery in later is easy. The same thing with electric cars, right? That's why it's so useful to have them out there and running. And finally, Tesla are dragging the rest of the world, kicking and screaming into, into understanding this stuff yes. is real. Um, but all of the benefit, all of the benefits in new batteries become a really easy drop in. And, and you solve all the other problems now. And that last bit then becomes the kind of the last icing on the cake. And I guess with batteries in an aeroplane, it must be um, the, the significance would be in the aerodynamics and where the weight is in the plane. Because traditionally, you've got sort of engines hanging on the wings or in the, some of the older ones, they've, they're sitting on the tail. Um, I guess if you've got batteries in the, um, maybe in the fuselage or maybe you have them hanging off the wings, I'm not too sure. What, where would you put them? It turns out the place that they, the subtly interesting place to put them in a lot of aircraft is actually in the wings, um, literally where the fuel tanks aren't. Um, it turns out there's a thing with aviation that, that you actually get a better result if you can put the heavy things inside the wings themselves, right where the lift is being generated. Mm -hmm. So to the extent that it fits, that's where you can, you can shove a lot of them. Um, the other thing, there's a slight simplicity you gain from electric storage, even though obviously the main enemy is weight, which is that the center of gravity of a conventional aircraft shifts as the fuel is burned, depending on where it is in the aircraft. You know, big, big passenger jets are actually pumping fuel around between tanks as you're flying to adjust for that. Battery systems, obviously, that doesn't change, right? So, so once you've got the balance right, it stays right. But clearly, the challenge is energy density. The other thing we are starting to see people play with is the idea of using electric drives for takeoff and landing and switching to jet fuel in the air and the reason that's sensible is the same reason diesel same reason diesel electric trains are so sensible right that electric motors are awesome at short bursts of high power and that's takeoff right and also in landing so you get much quieter takeoff and landing and importantly for people who have to live in cities the pollution from the jet engine no longer occurs over the city it occurs you know somewhere out over the ocean and, and we, we live in a connected, you know, a single world. It obviously still affects the atmosphere, but you aren't dropping the results straight on the heads of the people living in the city near the airport. So just like electric cars, the kind of long tailpipe concept actually has health benefits in terms of moving the pollution away from where the people live. That's fascinating. What a brilliant idea. I can't, I can't think of any argument against it. Um, how far are we from those sort of um, innovations? Uh, that that doesn't involve you know any great leaps of technology. It just involves integration, right? That's why those integration of, of that electric turbine engine I mentioned, the drive system, um, into an aircraft. So you and you, the point is that you could run those electric turbines as the thrust producer. You would run them in batteries for takeoff, and then you would switch to 
um, jet aviation fuel going into a generator that spins the very same turbine, right? So you've hmm. got the turbines on the wings are electric, electric in all cases. It's the electric version of a diesel train, yeah? Yes. Um, and there's, again, there's no, there's no huge technology barrier there. There is, there is that classic thing. There is just a hell of a lot of hard work. You know, it's that old thing about innovation being 99% perspiration. Right. Yes. That, bit's, that, bit is, that bit is coming, but the 1% is already done. There is no actual technology barrier to that. It's, it's kind of just a matter of cranking the handle. Mm. Fascinating stuff. Look, I wonder if we might just yeah. finish our conversation um, around electric vehicles as we learned um, from the first podcast you did with us. And um, I'd recommend um, listeners um, go back to that because it's um, quite a fascinating discussion we had about this, all of the uh, early adoption of electric vehicles. We're now starting to see policies rolled out. Um, this this podcast is being recorded before the result of the election is known. In fact, it's be, we're a couple of days before the poll, so we don't really know who... Um, is going to win the election. But Simon, what do you make of 50% electric vehicle targets by 2030? I mean, right. what, are you, what, are you, what are you sort of sensing out there that is achievable? Um, um, yeah, do you, think, uh, do you think we're aiming high? Do you think we're aiming low? Do you think we just need to get out with some sort of target now and then adjust it later once we see some sort of price parity appearing whenever that does? Right. I, uh, there's, a, there's a few things there. I think having a target is a good thing because it then drives the conversation about designing incentives to head towards that target. Even if you don't quite reach it, the fact you've got a target is an enormously positive thing. And I think any aspirant government without a visible target to drive the adoption of zero emission vehicles needs to go back and re-examine their own reasons for being around. Hmm. You know, it seems so obvious that, that there should be that aspiration. Why should there be that aspiration? Because electric cars are real and they work and they're growing in every country that has incentives, which means every country except this one right now, they have these enormous benefits in terms of health. They could be the reason why there's a restart of an Australian automotive industry, because we are innovative humans. We can do that sort of thing. And if you look at every single major car manufacturer, all of them now accept that the future involves a big chunk. In some cases, they are saying, you know, 100% chunk within a you know, reasonable time frame of cars being electric. They're actually sensible things to have. So that target, it's, an, it's interesting how people are mistaking that target statement as saying half the cars on the road will be electric by 2020, which is, of course, not the point. The, the target like is half the new sales. Mm, that's right. Yeah, exactly. Half, half the new sales being electric is actually a pretty gentle target. I think it's highly achievable, um, and, and we should be aiming for that sort of thing. And again, the major point is, and I've railed about this with you in the past, and I continue to, is that we as a country are the only first world country with no rational incentives towards driving the adoption of electric cars. That seems a great pity because their benefits seem to be quite obvious. And I think, we, you know, we're obviously within, within just a few years away of electric cars not costing more than a roughly equivalent petrol car. They're already cheaper in terms of total cost of ownership. You buy a Tesla Model 3 and do the maths, you know, over five, over five or ten years, you're actually going to do better than owning a petrol car anyway. We just have to appreciate that the, that the future is, is around the corner and actually provides some incentive to keep up with the rest of the world. Yes, yeah, and, and you've actually pointed out too that over the last um, five or maybe maybe even 10 years, 
the actual um, incentives on the, on, for instance, things like imports on, on luxury um, sales tax um, on on cars has actually gone in the wrong direction for uh, fuel efficient yeah. cars, um, and sort of probably probably provide discount, bigger discounts now for the more polluting, less efficient vehicles that are imported. Well, that's that's it. To, while for the period that remains, while electric cars are more expensive than, than a roughly comparable internal combustion car, in other words, let's say same or lower tost, total cost of ownership, but it costs a bit more up front because you've got to buy the battery. The luxury car tax actually hits those vehicles because of that higher upfront um, price. So the fact that the luxury car tax in Australia exists at all is a bit mad. Why are we protecting a local car industry we don't have? Unclear. <laughs> um, but 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 logically, that tax I think should be should be zero percent for zero emission vehicles as another column in the in you know in in the current charge table. That would be a nice lack of disincentive to having electric cars. The other the other thing we've seen lately in in conversational terms has been a return to conversations, frankly, that were had in places like the UK and America 10 years ago about, oh, dear, how do I charge this car? Where do I charge it? What happens if I run into power? You know, dot, 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 right? There are answers to all of those questions. The thing I want to say is I've been driving electric cars in Australia since 2009. Our family only has electric cars, and that's been the case ever since we bought the first two Model S's in Australia as uh, um, it, when they were released. The number of times I have run out of power unexpectedly driving an electric vehicle in Australia in the last 10 years since I've owned and driven them is never. Yes. Right? It, it's, e it's easy. It's easier than owning a petrol car. It's an iPhone. Plug it in at night. In the morning, it's full. The end. It's great. <laughs> it, it does actually require a complete change of thinking, doesn't it? I mean, it's not. I, I guess yes. once people have yes. driven, yes. It, once people have driven an electric car, it kind of dawns on them. But until they've actually done it, then it's not immediately obvious because you just can't think of any other way than going down to the petrol station. You, the way you drive an electric car, is a little bit different, but it's different enough that you don't actually appreciate until right. you've actually been in one. Yeah, I'm not kidding about it being an iPhone, right? It's that the, the answer to how long does it take to charge my electric car is I don't know I'm asleep at the time, <laughs> and which, which, is, which is the same answer as for an, it's the same answer as for an iPhone. And Tesla have proven that you can do very fast itinerant charging with their incredibly large and growing network of superchargers that exist all the way down to and including the wilds of Adelaide where I live. Um, so that that works. The thing that's I think emergent and I'm doing it here in, in my office at Bay 64 in Adelaide, is we've got a big solar array at the office and the fabulous place to charge your car that solves all those issues of, oh, dear, I'm living in an apartment and I can't get it, you know, I can't get the charger in there or I'm parking on the street, is charge at work. You know, I think we're going to see more and more employers actually realise you put a solar array up at the office. My, my Model S charges under a 100 kilowatt hour floating solar array over our car park the car is genuinely charged from solar energy. You know, QE, you know, the end. Yes. Um, yeah. Because that's where the that's where the car is parked when the sun's shining at the bloody office. There's <laughs> lots of ways to solve this. It's interesting to note um, too that um, petrol cars, the sale of petrol and diesel cars, has actually fallen quite sharply over the last five or six months. And I suspect that the motor industry won't admit it yet, but I suspect that there's a lot of people out there who are thinking. I'm going to hold on to my petrol and diesel car that I've had for a few years, or in my case, for about 10 years, a little bit longer because I'm just waiting for an EV that I can afford. 
um, and I'll probably get really impatient and pay more than I really wanted to anyway, just 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 for the pleasure of having one. But um, I think that's starting to be a thing. I think people are holding off on their purchases, and I'm just wondering um, if that's going to accelerate the uptake um, um, even you know more than we think. Yeah, I think so. You know, we had a kind of false start in Australia. The, there was the, the, the MEV and then there was the LEAF, both of which in their initial instantiations had really rubbish range. So they kind of helped to augment the range anxiety bullshit argument. These days, the cars that are coming out have got entirely decent range. And so that isn't really a problem. And I agree with you. I think people are actually hanging out. The, I think people in the real world are hanging out for EVs. Lord knows why the governments we have don't seem to agree with that notion. I mean, the challenging thing with EVs is that they actually modify the economic structure by which cars are refueled. And there's another rubbish argument that says our energy grid can't handle electric cars all charging at night. Well, as I said to you before, half of them are going to charge during the day. Um, but that, that's actually a rubbish argument as well. If you do the actual maths, we've got more than enough energy grid to make all this work. Um, oh. It's and I oh, yeah. So so it's it's there. Here's the thing: if you think there's a barrier to take up of electric cars, look at places like like um, Norway, right, where where they've gone mad with them. It absolutely can work. We just need to get with the program. And I think again that the. the Population is getting with the program and our governments need to catch up with that realisation. Well, hopefully they'll do that very, very soon. Simon Hackett, um, once again, look, an absolute pleasure to um, speak with you and get your perspective and these fascinating story about the electric glider and the electric planes coming our way. And um, it's all very exciting. It is very exciting. And the last thing I want to say is, hey, when I when I posted a picture on Twitter a few weeks back of, of my electric Tesla Model X towing the trailer with my electric glider in it, just in order to, to bust another myth um, that you can't tow things. The, the valid argument is, yeah, but Model Xs are expensive, you know, if that's the, that, and that's true. But about a week ago, Tesla started releasing tow ball options for Tesla Model 3s. So you, you can, you know, the car that is, that the, there are the most of in terms of EVs in the world, pretty much, a Tesla Model 3 can now tow stuff as well. So, haha. Indeed, uh, you, and he, your weekend has been saved. Your, your weekend has been saved, and also my weekdays too, because they've even added, added a roof rack, so I can stick a surfboard on it when I get mine. So <laughs> for ah, me, that's perfect. the most important perfect. one. <laughs> so I mean, thanks once again, and uh, thanks to all our listeners, and thanks also to the sponsor of our podcast, Zero Mo. We'll be back again in a week's time. Bye for now. Driven Podcast was brought to you by Zero Mo, the non-profit initiative that supports battery electric alternatives for lawn and gardening maintenance. Zero Mo helps transition to cleaner and quieter garden power tools and electric vehicles powered by 100% renewable energy. Visit zeromo.com.au and find out how you can make the switch to zero emission, petrol-free lawn and garden maintenance.